Well, good morning again, everyone. Are y'all excited about Christmas season at Hillcrest? Amen. I'm telling you, it's going to be great. Y'all come back this afternoon or this evening. It's just going to be absolutely wonderful. Uh, well, our ushers, they're still working this morning. Y'all must be giving good today. Amen. They're normally all the way through the back. Stay as long as you want, boys. Amen. Amen. <laughs> hey, listen, while they're finishing up, let me make an announcement this morning that's very important for all of us. I'm very proud to announce that our good buddy and friend and rock star, uh, Jim Carmack, is rejoining the staff team here at Hillcrest. He's right over. Jim, stand up, brother. Uh, Jim, of course, was on our staff, and then God called into the mission field uh, down in El Salvador, where he and Tracy and his family ministered for several months, and then they had some at-home here in Pensacola family issues, critical family issues that required them to come back uh, to Pensacola, and of course, um, we are just delighted in many respects that they're back with us, and uh, they're great people, good friends in the Lord. And uh, Jim now takes up a critical role. He was family minister over at our Spanish Trail campus, a responsibility that's now uh, being uh, overseen by our good friend Heath and Elsa Wilson. Uh, but Jim now will take on the role of community director or director of community development at Hillcrest. And uh, that's a perfect role for him. It's a role that we've been trying to establish for many years at our church. Basically, he's the local missions pastor, if that makes sense, and he will raise our community profile by being our staff liaison to businesses and schools and government affairs organizations, as well as the many ministry uh, partners and mission partners that we have in Pensacola. He'll also be over our first impressions ministries, both inside the building and outside the building, and we finally have a staff person that's really uh, going to take the, um, uh, the bull by that horns and run with it and provide good leadership as we continue to make our best first impression upon our community. And then he'll also become our chief storyteller at Hillcrest as he becomes aware of how lives uh, and organizations are being changed through the ministries of our church. You'll be seeing the handiwork of that on our screens as he helps us to tell stories about what God is doing in the lives of our people, in the lives of people in our community. So, Jim, we're proud of you. He's the best-known face of all of us at Hillcrest. Everybody knows him uh, because of his many years in local news here at Hillcrest. And so it's a role I think is perfect for him, and we welcome you. One more time, welcome Jim and Tracy back to Hillcrest. Great stuff. Now, who's ready to get into the Word of God this morning? Would you say amen? Amen. We're in Colossians chapter 3. If you're new uh, to Hillcrest, we have been in a study this entire fall uh, of Paul's letter to the Colossians. I love it. And it's just power-packed with much spiritual meat that we can sink our teeth into, and we have been doing that. And we are in the practical section of Hillcrest as we're about to wrap this study up over the next several weeks in the life of our church. And today we're going to kind of foray into what many have called the relational section of Colossians as he continues to unpack the practical side of the theology of Colossians 1 and 2. He's been helping us to understand how to put that to work, how our lives ought to be seen indeed as changed lives with old things having passed away and all things being made new by the resurrection life 
of Jesus Christ, and a part of that practical life involves living together in relationships. I was in the lobby of a car repair shop not long ago when a news story came on the television that was playing in the lobby, uh, and it was a story about the importance of meaningful, healthy relationships. Study had been done, apparently, and the reporter was indicating that those who had uh, performed this study had concluded that, generally speaking, meaningful, healthy, supportive relationships were just as important to a person's overall health as diet and exercise. And you know, when you think about it, if you've got solid people in your life that encourage you and uplift you, people that you love being around, where there's not a lot of tension, there's not a lot of high maintenance required, amen, that just lightens the load. And I think when the load is lightened, stress is lifted, and we live more comfortably in life. So I could see where I'm not a scientist nor the son of one or a social scientist, but I could see where that would certainly be very, very helpful part of your life. Because when things are good in the relationships of our lives, particularly in the relationships of our lives at home, things tend to be tolerable everywhere. But when things are not good in the relationships of our lives, particularly in the relationships of our homes, things are jacked up everywhere else too. And that's why this is so important, and that's why it's so important that we understand what's in the Bible about this. Because actually, the biblical writers have a lot to say about the importance of healthy relationships. And as we open our Bibles today to Colossians 3, we find Paul entering into this discussion of this critical component of life, namely the personal relationships of life. It's not the only time that Paul does it. In fact, regularly and frequently in his letters, Paul ventures into this arena of relationships. Sometimes he does it in a general sense, as we're going to see here in Colossians 3 this Sunday and the following two Sundays outside of Christmas Sunday. But sometimes uh, he gets even more specific in some of his letters, and he names names, right? He'll actually name people by name, saying, you need to get your act together and start loving on people like you're supposed to. So he deals with relationships in a very prominent way. Theologians, particularly with the type of passage that we're going to look at this morning, Theologians call these relational sections of the New Testament letters household codes, household codes. And, and these can be found uh, in Paul's letters most prominently here in Colossians and then even more prominently in his letter to the Ephesians. Because in both of these letters, in Ephesians and in Colossians, Paul's going to deal with the three most important and most significant relational triads of your life and mine. He's going to deal with husbands and wives. He's going to deal with parents and children. And then he's going to deal with slaves and masters. And bringing that into our context, we would say employers and employees, right? Well, would you not agree that those three relational dynamics are going to take up most of your time with your life? You'll build some other relationships out of, outside of those three arenas, but you won't have time to build many. Because between working on your marriage and working on your kids and kids at some point working on their parents and husbands and wives and parents and children and the relationships that you have with those with whom you work for and work with, those are going to occupy 90 plus percent of your time. They did then and they still do today. 
So what I want to do beginning today for the next couple of Sundays, take a brief look at these. Paul is brief in Colossians. And today we start with the most intimate and important even of these human relationships, which is, of course, the relationship between a husband and wife. It's only two verses, and Paul is really brief here to the Colossians. And here's what it says beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let me just say this morning, God does have a plan for your home. It's a divine plan from time and eternity. He has a plan for our marriages. He has a plan for our families. And here's the thing about God's plan. It's guaranteed to bring happiness and fulfillment to those who are wise enough to understand it, obey it, get in on it, and live it. And so we want to begin today here with marriage, two points this morning. And first, we begin, as Paul does, every time this subject comes up, we begin with a word to the wives. Now, let's just cut straight to the chase here this morning and say that whenever the role of the wife is addressed by the New Testament writers, it always begins the same way, whether it's Paul or Peter. And there's a big household code in 1 Peter chapter 3 that you can read as well. It's always um, a statement that begins with the wife, and the instruction is always the same. Wives, and then what's the next word? Submit. That's right. And here's where all the women start to reach for their purses to bring out the bricks. If they don't have a brick, something else that they can throw at the pastor. One of my favorite Christian cartoons is the little one-block cartoon that has a pastor in the pulpit, and he's dressed in a full suit of armor, medieval armor, and the mouthpiece is barely opened, and out of the mouthpiece comes the caption, today's sermon is on the subject of submission. (laughs) I love that cartoon. So women just sit back and relax, because this is ultimately one of the most politically charged concepts in the Bible, but also one of the most misunderstood. And because it's misunderstood, it becomes politically charged, but it should not be so. This is the way that Paul begins in Colossians 3, wives, and then the next word out of his mouth is submit. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He's going to take that one sentence statement and expand it a little bit when he writes his letter to the Ephesians. And so let's take a look at that just by way of comparison, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, statements like those tend not to fall well on 21st century ears. Many people hear those statements and they immediately will cry foul. And they'll begin to try to figure out some way to rationalize a statement like that out of the Bible. Sometimes they'll say, well, that's a scripture that's just not applicable in 21st century culture. Or they'll say it's just not valid anymore, that that was something that may have had uh, propriety in the first century, but... The first century culture is a lot different than the 21st century culture. We've evolved, things have changed, and as a result, this teaching no longer applies to marriages today. That's a way of interpreting the Bible known as particularity, saying that this passage of Scripture 
only applies to the first century culture. And let me just say this morning, there is no doubt that contextualization and cultural consideration often do come into play when you're trying to interpret the Bible. The Bible says women shouldn't have short hair. Isn't that what it says? 1 Corinthians. And so as a result, if you're a woman here with short hair, you need to get out in Jesus' name. No, not really. I'm teasing. No, I mean, there are contextual and cultural considerations that help us to understand how to properly interpret that. Same is true for wearing tattoos, by the way. Saving in the Bible says you shouldn't do that. But that's a contextual thing that we can certainly talk about. And there are others. There's a passage in the Bible more than once about parents stoning their rebellious children. We obviously don't do that anymore. I thought about it, but <laughs> we obviously don't do that anymore. Because when we interpret the Bible, contextualization and cultural considerations do come into play. But having said that, we have to be very careful with that. Amen? You have to be very careful because you can use contextual and cultural considerations to take your penknife and extricate anything out of the Bible that you don't like. And so you have to be careful when we do that. There's just a couple of verses down the way. In fact, we'll look at this next Sunday where the Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord in everything, for this is right. Well, how many of you would argue that that's just germane to the first century? Your kids might want to argue that, but you wouldn't. You would say, no, 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 that's, that's generally applicable for all of God's people for all time. Well, who makes the decision that verse 20 is generally and culturally applicable, uh, applicable across the board, but verse 18 isn't. Y'all with me? And so this is a part of the challenge of properly interpreting the Bible. The difference here is that the subject of authority and submission runs all through the Bible. Nothing goes out of style when it comes to authority and submitting to authority. These are key themes that apply, by the way, not just to wives. Authority and submission applies to everybody in the house of God. Can I just say this morning, everybody submits to somebody. Doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. And so, you know, if you're going to get angry at submission, all of us should get angry about it. But really, none of us should get angry about it because God has woven that into the fabric of the society of his people, and he's done it on purpose. God's people are to submit to the authority of the government. Isn't that right? Romans 13. God's people are to submit to the authority of employers. We're going to get to that later. Children are to submit to the authority of parents. Churches are to submit to the authority of their pastor elders. Husbands are to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, Ephesians 5.21 says that in the body of Christ, we as God's people are to what? Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we all have this responsibility to yield our rights so that others are more important than ourselves and so that we elevate others even at the expense of ourselves. And that's kind of what it means to submit. The word submit as it's used in the Bible, hupatasso in the Greek is a compound word. It's a military term. It means to rank underneath. Is everybody familiar with the concept of chain of command? How would our military operate if we just... If a president issued an executive order and said, I'm, I'm egalitarian to the core, I don't like this chain of command, it makes some people unhappy, we're going to eliminate chain of command. We'd be ripe for invasion, wouldn't we? Because we'd have a military that would be totally 
chaotic, and out of control. But one thing we find as we open the pages of the Bible is that God is a God who's into order. Order. God is not the author of confusion, but he is a God of order. He is a God of peace. So, when it comes to authority and submission, understand that this is how God has ordained culture and society, and especially his new society, which is his body, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to function and to operate. And obedience requires that I recognize that, and I yield to the leadership of another that God has established as an authority in my life because I know that that's in the will of God and that's how God has designed it. He's given authority to that person and I'm going to follow that person as long as doing so doesn't force me to disobey Scripture or as long as doing so doesn't cause me to violate Christian conscience. Let me just say, submission in the Bible is never absolute. Everybody with me, say amen. It's never absolute. It's always qualified. No, we follow the authority that God has placed in our lives up to the point where obeying that authority would cause us to disobey God by disobeying or compromising Scripture. And at that point, even though we have an authority, when they attempt to do that, we raise our hands and we lovingly and respectfully say, no, we must obey God rather than men. Amen. But aside from that, we follow the leadership of the one God has placed in authority over us. That's the attitude and the disposition the Christian wife is to have toward her husband. And let me just say this morning, it doesn't really matter because oftentimes I'm asked, well, my husband doesn't know the Lord. That really doesn't matter. Unless what your husband leads you to do causes you to violate Christian conscience by violating the word of God and sinning against God doesn't matter whether they're saved or not. Can I say this morning, most of the women in these churches to whom Paul was writing were not married to Christian husbands. I mean, it wasn't like there was an exemplar Christian family by this time. There were many married Christian wives within the context of the body of Christ that did not have Christian husbands. So it's the principle there that's important. You say, well, my husband lives an out-of-control life, and I really don't respect him. Well, it's not really so much an issue of respecting him. It's about respecting his position. Some of us had parents that really weren't worthy of our respect. But regardless of whether or not they were worthy of our respect, it doesn't give us the right not to respect the office of them as parent. Everybody tracking with me? Honor your father and your mother. There are no qualifications to that. And by honoring that position, we in turn obey Christ. And by obeying Christ, we honor Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, as we're going to find out here by making this turn to the husbands in just a moment, we recognize that this command, whether it be a command to me to follow and submit myself to the authority of the government. By the way, when you find that statement in there about Christians submitting to the governing authorities, that was like to Nero. It wasn't to a born-again Christian president of the United States. This was a vile, violent, pagan man who was proclaiming himself to be God. And yet, the Bible says 
submit to that authority up to a point where that authority violates. And then you have permission to civil disobedience, respectfully, honorably, and with the understanding that there are repercussions for that as it pertains to governing authorities or to civil authorities of some kind. So you respect the position, you respect the office, and you obey Christ first. And the point here simply is, this is not a command that's given to the wives in isolation. We're going to get to the husband here, and the biblical design is for both husband and wife to operate within the sphere of these marital commands. And here's the thing, y'all still with me, say amen. When both parties do it, you got a slice of heaven on earth. Where it becomes a rub is where you've got one party or the other trying to do their godly thing with the other, not cooperative with the Lord. So with that in mind, with this word to the wives, having been given, wives, here's the thing, you are of just as equal value to your husband. And I do think that's an important point to make because most of the time when we hear a word like submit, we have this stereotype, don't we, that that's what it means right there. He can put a boot on my neck. He can devalue me. I don't matter as much as my husband does. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because the fact of the matter, the Bible teaches very clearly that men and women are of absolute equal value in the sight of God. Isn't that right? We are of absolute equality in the sight of God. The word has nothing to do with worth and it has nothing to do with value. This is where the controversy tends to come into play because I think that I'm somehow inferior but it doesn't mean that at all. Worthiness is not the issue. Neither is equality the issue. Men and women are spiritual equals before God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no what? Male and female. For you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. What's at stake is order. Order. Men and women are equal in grace, but different in place. Sometimes the question is asked, who's better in the marriage, the man or the woman? The answer is neither. Neither is better, but they do have different roles, and God gives them different responsibilities because what's in play is order, a productive, God-honoring home that moves in a purposeful and intentional direction under the authority of the very Spirit of God. All right? Everybody with me so far, say amen. Wives, submit to the godly leadership of your husband. Well, why in the world did God give the husband the leadership responsibility? One of these days you'll be in heaven, and you can take that up with God. Amen. All we know from the Bible is that he did, and he roots it in creation. He roots it in the whole fabric of creation but that's another sermon for another day. We must move on. And we do so by turning now to the husbands. And husbands, let me just say from the beginning, this is a task list for the husbands. The Bible has far more to say about the role of the husband than the role of the wife. Far more. You look at the Ephesians 5 passage, the Bible has about that much to say to the woman and it has about that much to say to the husband. And that ought to tell you something, guys, that we have an incredible and important responsibility in terms of the leadership of our marriages, in terms of the leadership of our children, leadership of our home, 
The Bible says here in verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There are a couple of divine tasks in that one simple sentence. And the nexus of it all is love. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands, number one, are to love their wives. The word there, of course, is the word agape. Of all of the biblical words of love, the word there is used of the self-sacrificial love of God himself demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This unconditional, unself-centered, others-focused, sacrificial love that God has unconditionally demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. The same love, are you guys listening? Say amen. The same love that led Jesus Christ to turn his back on the riches of heaven, come to a sin-soaked, sin-fallen world for the purpose of bearing a cross and shedding his blood and having his body pierced with railroad spikes and spears of the Roman oppressors, that same sacrificial love is exactly the kind of love that you and I are to show our wives. Absolutely no different. We ought to be willing to sacrifice everything for the betterment of our wives and our children. Paul will say that. Paul will give that qualification to the Ephesians. He'll not only say, as he does here to the Colossians, evidently it was more of a problem. Marriages were more of a problem probably in Ephesus than they were in Colossae. Apparently, the home was not as critical an issue in Colossae as it was in Ephesians because he writes a whole lot more and he qualifies this love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, cleansing her with the washing with water through the word that he may present one day unto himself the church as a radiant church. No spots, no stains, no wrinkles, no blemishes of any kind, but holy and acceptable. That's the way God loves his church. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus paid it all for his bride. Now Paul puts that yoke of responsibility on all us husbands. The way Jesus demonstrated love for his church the way you demonstrate love for that bride of yours. Christ gave his best for your best. So a husband's love for his wife reflects that same attitude. It's a willingness to pay any price, bear any burden, travel any distance, weather any storm in order to better and nurture my bride. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's always about her. Even if that means that I have to go hunting for a blouse rather than an eight-point buck, it's all about her. And so, somehow, those are the hunting expeditions. It'll take up most of your time. Amen, amen, and amen. The book of Genesis, the Bible tells us about the story of Jacob. I love this story. Sometimes I'll tell it at weddings. Jacob, who fell in love with Rachel, man, he loved that girl, and he went to his his uncle Laban, who was her father, and said, you know what, I'll work for you seven years. He didn't even let the father-in-law to be drafted. Just let the father-in-law draft the contract, then negotiate with him. No, he went in and he said, I'll give you the big seven. I'll give you seven years in exchange 
And father-in-law Laban said, soon, soon to be father-in-law said, yes, we'll do it. And he worked seven years. And the Bible says in Genesis 29, 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I love that statement. That's sacrificial love right there. And when you read the rest of the story, old Uncle Laban put quietus on him, didn't he? He married him secretly to the younger sister, or to the older sister, rather, Leah. Don't you know what a shock that was? When old Jacob woke up in the darkened tent the next morning, found he'd gotten married to the wrong woman. And he goes and he talks to his uncle again, says, you duped me which was just rewards for him because Jacob was the greatest deceiver of the Bible up to that time. The deceiver got deceived, didn't he? And he said, well, this is not our custom. We marry off the younger one or the older one first in our culture, but you can have the other one. It's just going to take you another seven years to earn her. And he never complains. He works 14 years to get the woman he loved. So great was his love for her. That's sacrifice. No price too great, no need too small. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But not only do husbands love their wives, husbands are to honor their wives. Honor is really at the root of a successful marriage. Honor goes both ways in the relationship by submitting to the godly leadership of her husband. A woman is honoring the position that God has put her husband in. And in return, the husband is to honor the wives. That's kind of what Paul means when he says here in Colossians 3 that husbands are not to be harsh with their wives. Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, husbands uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Now, when you think about it, those are really radical statements. Sometimes we as Christians in this libertine culture that we live in today are accused of being Neanderthals about our views for women. Let me just say, Orthodox Christianity is all about the liberation of women. And this is so countercultural. These kind of statements are countercultural to husbands of the first century because women in the first century were a little more than property of their husbands. The husbands all but owned the women could do whatever they wanted to, and the law couldn't touch them. And I mean whatever they wanted to do, they could do it to their wives fundamentally. And they were above the law. And so Christianity, far from that, Christianity does not denigrate women. Husbands are to sacrificially love their wives. They're to nurture their wives. They're to understand their wives. The Bible uses language like understand, respect, Honor your wives. Why? Because the scripture says they're all part of God's team. We're all part of the family of God. They're not only your wife, they're your sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter will say they're heirs with us of the grace of life. So husbands, not only love them as Christ loved the church, honor them as Christ has demonstrated honor to you even though your heart was corrupted by sin. I love the story of the man that wandered into an antique shop in San Francisco several years ago. He was a collector of valuables, and he looked down on the floor, and there was a kitty cat drinking milk out of what appeared to be a small jug, <clears throat> and he looked a little closer at it, 
and he immediately recognized it as an antique, an ancient jug from China. And he thought, man, what in the world is that doing on the floor and what's in the world a cat drinking out of it? That's priceless. And the fact that it was filled with milk, he just couldn't understand it. So he immediately thought, this is a guy that doesn't know what he's doing, this shop owner. And I'm going to get something that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for some chump change here. And so he began to have a conversation when the owner came out. And uh, he looked and he pointed down on the floor and he said, what a great cat that is. You know, I, I'm a lover of cats and my cat just died and I'm looking to replace the cat and that one looks just like my cat. And He said, I'd like to have it. And he said, oh no, you know, she's become part of the family. And the guy said, look, I'll give you $100 for the cat. Oh, she's old and she's not worth $100. And oh, I really want the cat. I'll give you $100. I'll give you more if you want it. And he said, no, 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 the $100 is more than she's worth. I mean, if it's that important to you, give me the 100 and you take the cat. And uh, the customer said, well, thank you very much. I handed him a $100 bill. He said, now, come to think of it, I, I, I've gotten rid of all of my cat stuff, so I'm going to need something to feed the cat. And I know she's already used to that jug down there. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll throw in, I don't know, another 20 for the, for the jug, if you don't mind. And the guy looked back and said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I couldn't do that. That's a priceless relic from the Ming Dynasty of China. <laughs> he said, so that is the one thing in the shop that's not for sale. And he said, you know, it's funny, though. Ever since that I've had that thing, I've given away more cats than I can count <laughs> over the years. <laughs> here's, here's, here's the reason I tell that silly story. It's really important guys, that you recognize the value of what you have. God's given you, I'm telling you, the Bible says that. This is what it means to honor someone. Honor somebody means to attach high value to them. I mean, if I had an old fiddle and I handed it to you and said, here, hold this for a minute, and it was just a fiddle that I had bought down at the music store, you'd probably hold it. But if I looked at you and said, hey, here, hold my Stradivarius from 1692. Ah. <laughs> And if I could convince you to hold it, you'd be holding it like this. Stay away from me. I'm holding a Stradivarius. It's recognizing value. And man, the most priceless possession among them that you have is a God-given, God-honoring wife. A wife that loves God, loves her husband, blesses her family. Some of the last words in the book of Proverbs, Solomon says, a wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her, and watch this, lacks nothing of what? Value. Love your wife, honor your wife. And let me just remind you guys, you're, you're the linchpin of your home. As the husband goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the community. As the community goes, so goes the nation. As the nation goes, so goes the world. You're the point guard. You're the oil that keeps the machinery running. And there are repercussions if you fail. Peter goes into a lot of the repercussions. In fact, he says in 1 Peter 3 that you're to love your wife with tenderness and respect. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you know what that tells me? If you're 
out of sorts with your wife, you're out of sorts with God. That's what it says. When you mistreat your wife, you're out of fellowship with God. Supply line been cut. So if you're here this morning as a husband, you've got a dry spiritual life. God seems like a million miles away. There may be a lot of reasons for that, but maybe you ought to look inside the house. Begin that evaluation at home and ask yourself, am I treating my wife with the honor and respect that God says she deserves? And wives, let me conclude by asking you a question. When you have a husband that loves and honors you like that, how hard is it going to be to submit to his leadership and follow him as he follows the Lord? Most women I know would give just about anything for any man that would love them like that. It's not one thing or the other. At home, we're a team. It's not a question of who's in charge and who's in control. I've been married 33 years. I couldn't tell you one time I've had to pull rank at home. Not one time. Now, if there was a decision, Judy and I couldn't get it together, I'm responsible for the decision. And I'd make it. But we've never had to do that. We've prayed together. We've loved each other. We've arrived at decisions together. Instead, marriage is about two people looking out for what's best for each other, yielding their rights so that the other might be elevated and honored and nurtured. It's really what it means to submit. In one sense, without giving up authority, it's what we do to our wives. We yield our best for her best so that she's elevated as more important than we are. It's exactly what Christ did when he left heaven to come to earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. But he gave up his best for our best. And that's what we ought to do for each other as well. That, brothers and sisters, is marriage God's way. And it's how we live together as one. This is God's word. And let all who agree say amen this morning.